I had to shove down so many different parts of myself in order to access belonging. It wasn't until I realized post high school that, oh, wait, I can have both. I can be authentic and also secure my belonging and find my place at the exact same time. And that was a moment that was like, yes, that this is it. This is the way. Welcome to the Intuitively Aligned Podcast, a place for changemakers to cultivate their intuition and foster greater impact in their everyday lives. I am your guide, Sydney Bloom. My guest today is Jake Ernst, the clinical director at Straight Up Health, which is a mental health clinic for young people and their families in Toronto, Canada. As a therapist, Jake helps people identify patterns that are keeping them stuck so they can reconnect with themselves and build a life they love. Jake's core values are authenticity, connection, and creativity, which are the main drivers of his work as a therapist, writer, speaker, partner, friend, and dog dad. You can find his work on Substack, Facebook, and Instagram. Jake, I am so excited to have you here today. I am so, so, so happy to be here with you, Sid. Thank you for coming on. I feel like we have a lot to cover based on our conversations leading up to this, but I thought maybe to start out, would you share a little bit about who you are, where you come from, who are your people? Yeah, I would say that my origin story, so to speak, is of a small town nature. I am a small town kid at heart. I grew up in a small town. And so I often, people often sort of describe my vibe and my approach to my work as being very kind of calm, cool, and collected. And I think that I give credit to my small town for that. And although I've lived in Toronto for the past 10 years or so, I would say that I still carry so much of that small town nature with me into the hustle and bustle of the city. And so I would say that a lot of me finding my place, me finding my people has come from that origin. However, mm. I would say that that origin for me comes with a bit of a both and and a bit of a paradox because growing up queer in a small town taught me a lot, taught me a lot about myself, taught me a lot about relationships and taught me a lot about just who I am in context. And I mm -hmm. think that, I think that coming, you know, to the city and coming to Toronto and, you know, expanding my, my life, my career, my relationships, and of course my, my mental health practice, I, really started to tap into this aspect of myself that I didn't really get to access when I was younger. And I would say that part of part of that is just due to the fact that being in and growing up in a small town just really gives you so much perspective on the world and life. Can you say a little bit more about the kind of perspective that it's given you? Yeah, I feel as though my nervous system feels as though I operate mm -hmm. from a very different pace than a lot of people. I find okay. that my my pace is quite slow. It's of a slow nature, which I think just lends itself to just so much excellence and like tapping into of of self that I have just been afforded at like many points in my life. I I lost my dad when I was younger, when I was 15 in high school. He mm. died by a heart attack and that really sort of reset and reshifted just so many aspects of my life and just how I started to connect with other people. Being able to sort of connect with people from that place of, oh, wow, like life is really precious and relationships are so important to our well-being. That really sort of set the trajectory for me to become a therapist and me to want to help other people recognize those same truths. That must have been very, very difficult to lose your dad at a young age. Yeah. And hearing your context and your background and growing up in the small town does give me a deeper understanding of that grounding, beautiful energy that you carry and the kind of presence that I know I easily tap into being and sharing in space with you. So it really is a gift. Yeah, I... 
<laughs> I don't take that 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 compliment lightly. I I just I feel the weight of what you just said. I think it's really important that in this world that is so fast paced and so hustle and bustle and so hurried all the time that we mm-hmm. we do need people that we can co-regulate with and can slow us down. So I I really do value that as part of my authenticity. And for many many years said like I rejected that part of myself because I thought that that was wrong or that was bad. And I thought the goal was to be, you know, the most extroverted and bubbly and like energetic and active person in the room. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I denied that part of myself for so long because I, I thought I had to be one way, but it turns out this is who I am. And now I know that is true. And so I don't have to abandon that version of myself in order to make other people like me or in order to share in space with other people. And so thank you for acknowledging that. Mm, Thank you. And I think it's really powerful to hear that shift from you. And the fact is we live in a society where intellectually and almost tokenistically, because of how prevalent mindfulness has become in the mainstream, which is awesome, and we can talk about that. But at the same time, I feel like it's been a bit tokenized and people talk a lot about presence, and yet it's not necessarily highly valued as an embodied practiced currency for existing and and interacting in our work especially but also just in general we expect and and it's I know this is technological conditioning as much as any other conditioning but it really feels like there is just this urgency and expectation of immediacy on so many things so I really appreciate that we're starting from that place of just stepping back and acknowledging what does it mean to live with presence and not just to talk about it. Oof. Oof. Yeah, totally. I I really do believe that many of us do not know what being present feels like. And I, I to your point, I think many of us have an idea in our minds around what that looks like. And unfortunately, I think it has been co-opted in a way that just makes it feel so much more ideal than it is mm. practical. And I, I I worry that we're really losing that as people, the ability to be present with each other and quite frankly, present with ourselves. Yes. And that's, I'm glad you said the part about being present with ourselves, because I think that that is the hardest part. And mm-hmm. once we learn to be present with ourselves, it changes our capacity to then be with others, to then just be and allow. I'm curious to know, because you mentioned that you had this slower sensing, if you will, growing up in a small town, and then that at some point things shifted gears because you thought you needed to be like a super extrovert and out in the world, bringing a different kind of energy. Can you highlight for me if there was a moment when you recognized that that push toward extroversion wasn't coming from a place of authenticity? And how did you find those roots that you originally had in a more present, slower paced way of being? Yeah, yeah. I So in, in the bio that you read for me, you identified my values, which are authenticity and connection first and foremost. And I think it's valuable to define what how I define those those terms. So authenticity is being me. And connection is being us. And in order to live our fullest lives, we have to be able to hold both, which is being me and being us at the same time. And the way that I do that is through my third value, which is through creativity, which is being present and creating and making in a world that often prevents us from accessing our full connection and our full authenticity. And so I use creativity as a way to access that. And I would say that the answer to your question really comes through that that root of finding my creativity and finding my creative voice. And for so long, I think I just moved through the world doing life the way that life should be done, quote unquote should. According and to according to who? Yeah, according to that's kind of the question, right? That I also ask as well. Like according to who and for what? Like that was sort of the illuminating question for me quite early on at the end of high school, I sort of said like, well, wait, why am I doing it this way? And according to who and for what? And Mm. 
the only people that I really had to sort of be as my guides and mentors were, of course, the adults in my life and like, the, you know, the teachers, my mom, you know, just really close family members and friends. And unfortunately, the life that they had designed and the life that they had sort of handed to me on this platter, I kind of rejected it. I was kind of like, that's not really what I want. And that's not really who I know myself to be. And that was a moment, I think, you know, graduating high school where I realized like, you know, oh, there's a life beyond this. There's, there's more here. And I think that a lot of us can tap into that feeling of, wait, this isn't it. Like, this isn't how I want to feel. This isn't where I want to be for very much longer. And so to be honest, I felt like I hit this like growing edge. I was at the ceiling and I was at my capacity for where I wanted to be in my life. And I mm. felt that going going away to university, one of the first people in my family to do so was that growing edge for me. And if I wouldn't have tapped into that authentic part of myself, like I would have just, you know, led the small town life. Like I would have just said, okay, this is what life is. And then I would have proceeded from there. But I, I felt brave and I felt like I wanted to take that on and I felt like I was capable of doing it. And so I, I went away to university. Again, I was the first in my family to do so. Which is huge, like that it cannot be stated enough how, (laughs) yeah. like anytime we do something that is different from the way of our parents or the generations that came before, and I know it's, I feel like it sometimes sounds cliche to even say it like that, but it almost feels like you're turning on different parts of your DNA, like the goods are in there and yet being in this different environment is actually allowing you to activate in something that really wouldn't have necessarily fully quote unquote turned on if you had stayed and everything was the same. Not that the authenticity piece wouldn't have crept up because I do believe these parts of ourselves will scream louder and louder for us to hear them if we ignore them. But going away to school for sure is a very brave thing to do. And it also can just change some of the wiring. That's how I feel it. I don't know if that resonates for you. Oh, it resonates fully. I I completely agree. I think one of the biggest aspects of it for me was environment. Like it really just took my blinders and kind of just like opened me up to a whole new way of being. And I was kind of like, wait, what? People do that? People think that way? People like people get to just live their life that way. And mm-hmm. I found that to be so liberating and so freeing in a way that it kind of felt a little bit like my innocence bubble was popped a little bit, right? Because I kind of moved away thinking that I was just going to kind of, you know, move on to a different trajectory in life. But in fact, like I got access to just so many more parts of myself that I felt that a small town like didn't really provide me. Right. So much more exploration, so much more creativity and so much more freedom to just like do what I want, think what I want, feel how I want and to be who I am. And that was the moment that I was like, oh, wait, I'm in charge. Oh, wait, there I am. And that was the moment where I was like, yes, this this is alignment. This is what alignment feels like. For people who get to have that experience, it is so liberating. And I remember feeling that way when I went away to school, even though obviously our lives and our stories and our contexts are so different. But I do think that that, especially at that age, to have that experience can be so profound. Can you pinpoint the way that you sensed the need to step into your authenticity? Like, did you feel it physically? Was it something that was coming out through words that you were speaking? Like, how did you sense and know this needed to happen? Oh, that is such such a good question. And to be honest, I have a bit of a fun answer because I think the way I look at it is I picture like middle school Jake. I picture like middle school self navigating the world in like grade six, grade seven, grade eight, trying to just like find his way. And I was that kid similar to like, you know, Arthur Reed and like, you know, characters from the magic school bus, just like really Mm. loving school, like really wanting to learn, wanting to help other people. I was that kid who was on the playground, who was like helping kids solve problems and just like really just being in the mix, you know, and just being that kid who was like, okay, like, let's like figure it out. Like, let's put a plate together at recess and then perform it like for our peers after lunch. Like I was just the kid who was like, I love it. (laughs) Yeah. I was the kid who was like, let's just try it and let's just kind of do it. And then as I got older, 
I started to become more inauthentic. I started to become more like the other kids. I started to become more like, oh, well, what does everyone else like? What does everyone else want to do? And so I feel like my high school experience was that, which is more through the lens of who does the world need Jake to be? And was that, was that for belonging? Can Do you know what it was that sort of nudged that pivot? Okay. You you nailed it. And I, I unfortunately had to sacrifice my authenticity for belonging. And I think that that's an experience that many of us go through at different stages in our lives, having to, for connection, in order to belong, we sacrifice who we are. And that is the experience of, of course, many middle schoolers and many young people today, especially in modern times, especially through the lens of, you know, social media and technology and just having to show up in a way that feels you know, perfectly crafted or kind of image-based, right? And mm. I, I really relate to that experience myself just because as a queer person, I had to shove down so many different parts of myself in order to access belonging. And mm. it wasn't until I realized post-high school that, oh, wait, I can have both. I can be authentic and also secure my belonging and find my place at the exact same time. And that was a moment that was like, Yes, that this is it. This is the way. And can you tell me more about that? Because we were talking a little bit about the sensing, right? So part of why I ask about the sensing is because in the realm of cultivating intuition, there are different ways of psychic knowing. They mm. are called the psychic clairs. So there's clairvoyance where you see something. And for some people, they may literally see a vision or see something as if it's real. But for many people, clairvoyance also comes in the form of visioning the way that we would, you know, dream a big dream and bring it into being because we can suddenly imagine what it looks like. There's clairsentience where you know something in your body. And again, and I'm sure you work with this in what you do with your clients, with the young people and their families, where our bodies give us so many cues about what is true for us, what feels right, what doesn't feel right, what feels safe. And so clairsentience is, oh, I've got a gut feeling. I do not want to go into that space. I'm not going in there. Or the opposite, right? Like sometimes we can feel magnetically pulled to a person, place, an idea. Claircognizance is psychic knowing. It's when you know something as a thought in your head and you recognize it as being an innate truth that's not something you reach through a logical connection you've bypassed that form of reasoning, but you know it to be true. And basically you can link each and every sense that we have, including even more subtle senses into these different ways of quote unquote, clear knowing or clear knowing is the Latin translation. So I'm curious to, that's why I push on the sensing because we realize more about how we use our intuitive gifts by trying to remember how we knew. Mm. Wow. 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 This is, this is giving me my entire life. This is so good. <laughs> I just love this so much. I would say it's a mixture of all of those though. Clairsentience like fully comes to the forefront for me because I really do relate to that sense of like the gut check mm -hmm. and that sense of like, yeah, I don't know. This doesn't really feel right. Or like, that's not really how I want to, to feel. Or like, I kind of get the sense that like, mm, that's not really it. And I guess I would sort of say that like through my training and through my education, I have a neuroscience background. I have really come to just hone in on a few really core and important truths. And number one is that the world around us changes the world inside of us. And the mm -hmm. world inside of us can affect change in the world around us. And I find that to be so incredibly amazing and just awesome that like the body and the brain have that dual capacity together. And so I think in terms of the the clairsentience, like, yeah, it, it for sure was that gut feeling early in my life, probably earlier than middle school. Like when I was a young kid, my mom always used to tell me I have a white light around me. And she used to tell me when I was younger, she's like, that means that you have to help people. That means that you're a helper. And that means that you need to help others. And wow. She always saw me as someone who was like, you have these gifts and you have to share them with the world. And it doesn't matter how big or small that sharing is, but this is your calling. And so 
<laughs> the really funny kid kid like interpretation of that. I thought that meant that I had to become a doctor. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but that's and so classic, right? That's so classic. So classic, right? And so then I went into a science program. I was like, oh, well, I'm a helper. So that means I have to become a doctor. And then I realized throughout my university education, I was like, nope, this isn't this isn't the interpretation of that. This there's there's another interpretation. I think it was my clairsentience and especially my gut feeling that really kind of led me in that direction, which is like, oh, I meant to help, yes. But I think my gifts are meant for a bigger scale and a broader audience than micro aspects of medical science. And I I then that is what led me to social work. That's what led me to the helping profession through therapy. Mm-hmm. And I would say that overall, that was really challenging for me because I I think I experienced a lot of grief just around the sense of growing up and getting older and figuring out like, what is this passion and calling that I'm supposed to answer to? (laughs) And it can be a lot of pressure. Yes. Yeah. Especially when, especially when the programming and like, God love your mom, who probably was looking at your aura, like she can feel your vibration and you are a very high vibe person to share space with absolutely and and it's also interesting how children take messages so literally and internalize them that it can take take years to rewrite those narratives that's so funny it's fascinating actually kind of i'm overlapping just a lot of the words and terminology you're using with a lot of my science background and i'm translate it (laughs) tell me all the things (laughs) yeah i mean i'm holding so much space just for the duality of the way we are and just the way life is through that lens of many things are true that Mm -hmm. we can hold both of them as equally true and equally valid and i think that in the sciences we sort of tend to sort of say like oh this is scientific and this is there therefore it means that there's more truth attached to it and i have been just really recently through kind of the lens of my own authenticity tapping into that sort of sense of like well wait what is truth what is, you know, valid reasoning and all that kind of thing. And so in terms of what you're talking about, the way that I translate that in my own terminology is through the lens of something called neuroception, which is our nervous system's ability to sense. It's kind of like an internal radar system that is constantly scanning our environment for cues of safety, opportunity, threat, and danger. And we have this internal capacity that is built in through this nervous system that is able to help us turn on or turn off our stress response. And Mm. basically what happens is sort of the nervous system that connects to all the individual organs in our body. And it talks to the different organs and tells our body and our brain what we need and what we need to do effectively. And so one of the ways it does that is through a process called interoception. And so when it connects to the, you know, the heart region and to the lungs and to the gut and to the, the gastro, all these different aspects of our body that help us meet our needs and help us function well, interoception is basically the communication loop through our nervous system that sort of says like, what do we need? And so that's like our thirst cues, our hunger cues, interoception is responsible for how we feel. And I just think it's just so fascinating, right? Just how the different disciplines explain the same phenomena, which is that we have an internal messaging system. I love that. And I find like I've always gravitated in my academic background to interdisciplinary fields and the more interdisciplinary, the better. And I've only recently come to the awareness that why I love interdisciplinarity is because it's different fields that are all finding ways to touch on that same truth. Like Mm -hmm. we as human beings are experiencing something that we know with clarity and we need to find as many different ways to bring shared understanding, shared language, accessibility to those ideas so that it can meet the masses at a level where people will receive something that for them can then be transformative potentially it's so powerful right it's so it's so hope giving and it's so strength like receiving like i just feel like for me when i'm tapping into my interoceptive ability to sort of sense inside like what's going on in there and how do i feel what am i thinking what do i need that is a, 
an ability and a skill like that that's not something that we that we learn that's not something that we are you know trained how to do as an example to that i didn't actually learn and this is wild to say i think maybe this is the first time i've spoken it out loud but it's something that i've always known inside i actually didn't learn what it felt like to be hungry or what it felt like to be thirsty until probably until like i was 21 like in university i didn't actually know what that felt like because i was so disconnected so disembodied and so inauthentically me i i find that just so fascinating that like it, that takes work that takes healing work to be able to connect to our inner knowing and to connect to our inner selves hard yes to that i'm curious to know how did you start to connect to those very primal senses when you were 21 i would say that it it sort of stemmed from this moment that I had where as a really caring person, I kind of saw myself as someone who was empathetic. Mm -hmm. And then I started to discern the difference between empathy and anxiety. And as I was getting older, I was really asking myself this question, like, is this empathy? Is this caring? Or is this anxiety? And I started mm. to tap into the sense of, oh, I think it may actually be anxiety that I'm not just using this feeling inside as a way to kind of connect to other people like I'm actually abandoning parts of myself and I'm actually becoming worried and stressed and fearful about what this means for my life my future my relationships and so it it moved from you know this sense of empathy and caring for other people like this is what I do in order to, to show up and care for people in relationship into mm -hmm. something and it morphed into anxiety and that differentiator there allowed me to connect to other aspects of self that was like, oh, if I'm feeling anxiety, if this is actually more anxiety than it is empathy or even excitement, what other feelings do I have to uncover here? What else is going on here? And that kind of led me down a path of like, oh, I don't even know what it feels like to be angry. I don't even know what it feels like to be hungry. I don't even know what it feels like when I'm stressed. And so that was sort of the invitation because, that I got. Because mm -hmm. you were in a way dissociated from your body. Is that's that what right. you're saying? That's right. Incredibly disconnected as a form of self-protection, as a form of facing it is just too big and too heavy and too scary. And unfortunately, I think a lot of us do operate through the world with a sense of disembodiment, through a sense of dissociation where we are so energetically disconnected and so emotionally ill-equipped to be able to face what's underneath there. So we just don't do it. Yes. Let alone, like you said, we don't teach these things in school, right? And I hope that for the next generation, we start to have that conversation. I know you've worked in school environments and you work with families with young people. Um, but yeah, it's wild. It's wild to think that trauma can happen and the ways that we adopt in order to survive then become a part of the operating system instead of recognizing new tools, new experiences or resources that help us move into what could be next for us. Truly, truly. And as you were kind of talking before, you know, just about that sense, that sensing, and then just being able to kind of tap into ourselves, it kind of reminded me of something else, another sort of term in, in psychology and of course, neuroscience how we all kind of connect and relate to each other, which is mm -hmm. the, the term co-regulation. And as humans, I really worry that we're pursuing self-regulation and pursuing individualism to a degree that is incredibly unhealthy for us. And we know through decades of research that co-regulation is the prerequisite for self-regulation. We don't know mm -hmm. how to self-regulate. We don't learn how to auto-regulate unless we have felt it in relationship, unless we've had that in our caregiving relationships. And so when we haven't experienced an attachment relationship through the lens of co-regulation, as in I use my nervous system to help your nervous system become calm, or mm -hmm. I use my feelings to help your feelings sort themselves out. When we don't know what that feels like, we can't tap into that place in our heart or that place in our gut or that place in our brain that allows us to either calm down, to regulate ourselves, to be able to soothe ourselves or find relief. And so I worry that that this disconnection that we're talking about and this dissociation 
is not just disconnecting us from ourselves. It actually leaves us less available for co-regulation, less available to be able to regulate with each other. And that is really catastrophic if, if we take that off the table. Yeah, it's a slippery slope. And I I do believe that technology is amazing and that we benefit so much from having it. But as a parent of some very young children, I can also say I find it alarming the degree to which parents, likely out of their own need for survival, which I, I understand, you know, opt to pass a tablet to a kid instead of actually sitting and co-regulating together. Mm -hmm. And trust me, I'm not taking any kind of a high horse here. I do believe for people who are raising small humans, everybody has to pick and choose their battles and decide what are the moments where we do co-regulate a certain way. When is it a good idea to actually offer your, your child some kind of outside toy, game, book, show, whatever that might help them land in a different way. But yeah, I, what you're saying resonates for me so deeply. And I really do share that same concern because if adult humans start to substitute technology for nervous system co-regulation, we are now creating a generation that that doesn't know what that feels like and potentially coming from generations that haven't had it too for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. and, and so what happens when we take co-regulation off the table, that means that we also take authenticity and inner knowing and inner alignment off the table, which is really scary to me. It also feels to me, I mean, it's really scary to me too. As we were opening, Jake, you said to me, sometimes I call it a pause cast, not a podcast. And I'm <laughs> holding that close to my heart to fully land with what you're saying because... <laughs> It's absolutely true. And it is really scary. And I can't help but also sense that there is an invitation here to upend something that could allow us to all find a way back home into our collective existence as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank, thank you for saying that. I think that's just so important. You know, I've I've long held the belief that as helpers and as healers, we have a moral obligation to be the bringers of hope. And the people who have to lead the charge in this, right? And I love what you said there, right? That it is scary. And there's a both and attached to it, which is that it's scary. Mm -hmm. And there's hope, right? And it's an invitation. And there's an opportunity here. And I think that when we forget that there's a both and when we forget that there's a duality, as with mm -hmm. everything in life, we really lock ourselves into the fear, right? We lock ourselves into catastrophe and we lock ourselves into distress rehearsal, which is not healthy for us either. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. And it is asking more of adults who maybe don't feel that they have more to give, who maybe didn't receive that as younger people, who maybe themselves don't necessarily feel connected to belonging in a way that's supportive of their own authenticity. So I'm not in any way blind to the challenge that's linked in that invitation because it's asking adults to say, how deeply can you sense? How deeply can you remember something that you may not have even known, but that is in our shared collective memory to co-create a future where the tiny humans that are in your world know what it's like to be safe in their own body through your physical, emotional, energetically grounded presence. Wow. It's asking a lot. It's asking a lot. And I honor that. Wow. Wow. And it, the, the thing that comes up for me as you say that is the duality in that, right? Like, of course, we want to help people and kids, especially know what safety feels like inside of their bodies. And I think that it is also really empowering and helpful for them to know that discomfort isn't dangerous and that discomfort yes. actually isn't um, always bad messaging, right? It's not always mm -hmm. actually a sign of something really big and bad about to occur. And so I'm, I'm actually curious just how you personally do that or how you sort of tap in and sense that for yourself, right? That mm -hmm. often I think 
I often kind of think that in these sorts of discussions around like intuition and authenticity, there becomes a sort of sense of like, oh, like I can just use my gut to like make decisions in my life and that will lead me and that will be the only source of knowledge that guides me. Right. And so I wonder what happens, like what happens when, you know, maybe a situation or a decision is misaligned with what the gut is saying or with what intuition is saying through the lens of something like discomfort or anxiety or panic or worries. I'm just curious how yes. you personally think of that. Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you what comes up for me right away. And then you can tell me if it's actually answering your question or not. And we can go <laughs> okay. from there. So one of the things that I notice as a parent is it's high sensory stimulation all the time. I have two young children under the age of four. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of movement. There's running around being called in multiple directions at the same time while also trying to hold this container that's supportive and also run a household and also run a business and all the things, right? And Mm. so one of the things that I have been trying to do very intentionally is when I sense that, and I'm speaking for myself as an adult, like when I sort of drop into that amygdala flight or fight you can you can tell me what all of the new dimensions of it are I think of it as fight flight or freeze but there's more right yep yeah there's more mm-hmm. um but when I feel that kind of in, inner sensory alarm bells going off like oh my goodness I have two children crying I know one of them's hungry one of them wants to go back outside the dog is running around and I don't want anybody to get hurt and now I'm feeling like I need help but in that moment when that's happening for me I'm really, really leaning into humor. I'm a very serious person and I do have a funny side, but it's very quirky. And I had the immense gift of growing up in a household where my parents would sing together and where my dad especially would, what he calls, sing our reality. And so I'd come down in the morning for breakfast and my dad would be singing a song about like, I'm making Sydney toast to get ready for school. And he would just sing (laughs) like a a fun song about what was happening. And he would say to me, I'm singing my reality, like in a very matter of fact way and a very playful way. And so I've been really leaning into that when sometimes my husband will come out of his office and walk into the dining room and shit's going down. (laughs) And he'll look at me like, are you okay? And I'll just sing in 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 the melody of a song that I know my kids would like. I would just sort of start to sing like, I'm trying to make dinner, but two kids are crying. And we went for a walk and I thought we had a really good playtime. I don't know what's going on, but somehow singing. And I do think that there's movement happening in the body when we allow ourselves to sing and when we allow ourselves to sort of activate through our voices and through our heart space, stuff shifts energetically, but also it just lets me bring in this, like, you know, I could go in the bathroom and scream or cry, or we could just start laughing. And as soon as the kids see that the adults are singing and laughing, guess what happens? Like everybody chills the F out. Absolutely. And that is just such a like a beautiful description of co-regulation also, right? The sense of like, I'm using my inner world Mm -hmm. to help you explore your inner world. And I think that that is just so beautiful and magical as a way of just resetting the tone, or at least like kind of finding different entry points into soothing, regulation, relief, all that kind of thing. Thank you. And I will say I'm not always that expanded. Like that takes a place of pretty significant expansion to be able to start to joke about it and sing about it and laugh. And, you know, these moments happen every day. And so each day is its own experiment. And sometimes I do the things that, you know, my favorite like parenting Instagram accounts recommend and it doesn't always work. Right. So that's why I feel like, again, it's stepping back into our authenticity though. Right. Like you don't need to outsource parenting advice. You can think about what would make you smile or what would make you land. Mm. And one of my big learnings has been to not make a moment of peak challenge or emotional upset into a moment for instruction or teaching. 
And I think this goes back to what you were saying about your own roots and that smaller town grounded vibe, right? Like to be really present means I'm showing up and and being present. And, you know, like how would you like it if as you were crying or not being able to fully regulate, having another human come and be like, Jake, that's not okay because the way that you <laughs> acted, you know, I don't use those moments anymore to try to explain. Because like, how would you, and they don't necessarily associate it to the lesson of what they did before. I mean, you tell me, you're the expert on this. I mean, I believe this in my core, right? Like that is how social conditioning happens. Yeah. Yeah. And then you you spend 30 years plus trying to deprogram feeling wrong for Mm -hmm. crying over a perceived injustice. And you don't even know what you did because, because you were in fight flight brain response. Totally. You you are speaking to so many different parts of myself right now. You're speaking to, <laughs> again, so many different layers. Tell of, me. I want to hear about it. Probably well, you've, I, you've given me the language though too, right? Like I love the way that you put your art and your teaching into the world and you make it so accessible. Thank, thank you for the affirmation of my work. I really appreciate that. It's something that I take really seriously. I think that making this work accessible to people is my primary goal. So thank you. Mm. And secondly, I really heard you describing a process of sort of just brain to brain parenting, right? Which, which is whenever there's a mismatch in the way that we are approaching versus like what's in front of us, like there's going to be co-escalation. There's going to be moments of mutual dysregulation in front of us. And so when you're using your emotional brain to talk to the emotional brain of your child, that's where you're going to find co-regulation. You're not going to find it by using your thinking brain to talk to their emotional brain. And so whenever there's that mismatch there, there's going to be mutual dysregulation because you're feeling ineffective. And then they're also not really getting any sense of like relief, validation, or like, oh, I feel seen and this feels real for me. And so, yeah, we want to, of course, like access the parts of their brain through our own parts of our brain that match theirs. Which, which also I'll say is a huge plug for adults who are thinking about bringing children in the world to do your own inner work. Truly. And you can do that work anytime. But I would just say as someone who spent, like I, I went to therapy for several years in my late 20s, and it was instrumental in understanding the things that were going on inside of my mind, inside of my emotional body, inside of my physical body that I hadn't been connected to. And you don't want to become a parent and then suddenly recognize that you're feeling unseen because there's an escalated situation with your children. And suddenly there are these like core needs coming up that haven't been met that you don't know because you haven't actually given yourself that space. So this is my my Mm. plug that parents give yourself the gift of getting support in a way that would feel good for you so that you're able to have that self-awareness of what's going on for you because it is important and it does matter and you don't want to be projecting that onto tiny humans who are just trying to find their own regulation truly retweet retweet that that is (laughs) that is so so good you know i think also what i do here from that too is the importance of listening and being present as we were kind of talking about earlier and mm-hmm. that that can be really hard, right? When child behaviors or other things that are going on in the environment bring up our own stuff, right? So if we're not working on our own shit, then yes, it's going to sit inside of our own brains and our own bodies in really uncomfortable ways, right? Which cause us then to react or behave in ways that are unlike ourselves or unlike the way that we want to show up as parents or as even caregivers. And I think Mm -hmm. that's a really big challenge that I see parents soaring through, especially in just these really stressful times is being able to just be present with what's happening in the moment and then being able to surrender space. And I think that, you know, in, in my profession, we talk a lot about holding space and over the, the past few years, like I've just been really rebuilding my relationship with those terms because I, I actually don't know if that's the most productive way of dealing with, the, the quote unquote space. I, I don't know mm. that holding space is actually what we need to do for people. And I actually want to just reflect back. I, th- I think that you are really good at doing what I call giving space. Mm. I think that I've never heard that. 
Yeah, I, th- I think there's a big difference between holding space and giving space. I don't think that you hold space. I think that you give it. I think that when we're holding space, it means that I'm still in charge of the holding, right? I'm yeah. that it's still me that's holding space for you on the other side. And I think in order to find connection, in order to find co-regulation, we have to surrender the space and give it over to the person. And I think that that you just do a really stellar job of that. And I've long admired just the way that you give space. And I think that as parents or as, you know, even as a therapist or as teachers, like I think that we can all find our own individual application of this concept, but I don't think that we're doing ourselves a service by holding space for people. I think that we need to work on giving space to others. Thank you so much for that. Like I'm, I'm absorbing that in my body as you say it, that really is the most beautiful reflection. And I had never thought of it that way. Although I don't necessarily claim to hold space, which is interesting. Sometimes I say that we can create a container, Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. but I really resonate with the way you just framed that, the reframe on giving space, because if we hold space, then we're still talking about power and control. And that's it. It's like a colonial model, right? I feel like a lot of coming into our own inner alignment, intuitive alignment, authenticity is actually letting ourselves step out of these models that we have inherited in ways that society and the world have been run that are actually not centering our humanity and our interrelations. So that... I completely agree. And so in that sense, the holding of space mm-hmm. is still a very paternalistic concept, right? It sort of suggests yeah. that like, I need to participate in the way that you operate in the space. And yes. I need to have a stake or control over, you know, how this space looks and and what the result is. And I just think that we just do so much better by allowing people to authentically express themselves by fully just surrendering and giving space over to other people so they can figure out what they need to do with it. And I I see that as being the transformative work of a therapist and of therapy. I think that that is what therapists do, right? Is we give space over to other people so they can use it how they need to. I think that's profound. And as you're saying it, I'm wondering in a world where there are so many adults who were not given that space as children, who are operating according to the expectations that were passed down to them, and maybe they feel like an inkling, right? Like, I think both of us can think of those times in our lives where we thought we were on a certain path and something else is calling us or things don't quite feel like they're the way you want to imagine your life happening, and yet that's what's happening how do people begin, in your opinion, and in, in what you've seen in your practice, to step into that authenticity or to be able to start to give space when they still so desperately need it for themselves too? Wow. Well, I just want to maybe start by just really saying, like, what is the impact of not being given space? And in my view, that's an injury. That is a, that's a relational injury. And when we experience those attachment wounds and those attachment injuries early in life, that can be a really hard rebuild. That's a really difficult process forward of being able to claim space, being able to feel like you're enough, to feel like you're good enough, that you don't have to please other people while you're taking up space with other people. You know, I think that, that yeah, part of what happens when we experience these attachment injuries is that we go inauthentic. We have to abandon and surrender that part mm-hmm. of ourselves that needs that, right? And so what I see is a ton of people having experienced really early attachment injuries and not having the tools or the empowerment or the capability, whatever term we use, to be able to move through it and to be able to access their authenticity again. That's powerful. Yeah, it's it's powerful. And I think that part of what I'm recently coming to terms with is that there's a lot of grief in it too. Having yeah. to grieve, having to grieve, you know, the, the 
versions of ourselves that we thought were going to happen or to grieve, you know, the parents that we wish we had or to grieve the relationships that we didn't really get access to early in life through the lens of our needs or through the lens of just what our attachment system required in order to be healthy, in order to be well. And I think that there, there is a lot of grief in that. And so your question brings up a really important duality for me, which is that the opposite of trauma is grief. Mm. Can you say grief, a little more about that? Yeah. Gr- you know, grief work is, in my view, at the foundation of any important therapeutic journey. And there is going to be an element of grief work in every aspect of therapy. Mm-hmm. And I don't think as a culture, we're really awake to that right now. I don't think that we really are sort of tapped into that sense of in order to be alive today, in order to be human today, we have to be able to radically accept and grieve a lot. And I don't just mean loss of life. I mean, just loss of expectation, loss of, you know, the reality that we want, the life that we want. And I think that that is really challenging. And so in order to heal from trauma, there's grieving work that needs to happen. We have to grieve the loss of control, perhaps the loss of certainty, the loss of, you know, connection to self. And therefore, in that grief work, we have to also reclaim certain parts of ourselves, reclaim aspects of authenticity or aspects of self that we didn't get access to, that were taken and and stolen away from us in that traumatic process. And so I think that what our work is collectively is to be able to grieve alongside our work of pursuing authenticity and connection. I could not agree with you more. I really want this to land for everybody listening to, because I think we are made to fear our grief because it is oftentimes so unexplored that without knowing it, looking at it from the outside, could feel like a vortex that you might drown in, right? Mm. And and it's unfamiliar. And yet I I resonate so deeply with what you're saying. And I feel like to let ourselves begin, even intellectually, let alone in a physically embodied, emotionally embodied way, but to intellectually experiment with the idea of what if grief could be the vehicle to actually support us to move energy, to actually support us to heal and that we won't be pulled down and lost in it. It's actually a portal that needs to open if we really are committed to doing the deep healing work. I really, I really strongly stand behind everything you just said. I think that in order to unlock our authenticity and to find connection, we will have to go through many different reiterations of a grief process. And yes. when I look at the stats right now, when I look at, you know, you know, the increase in loneliness, the decline in friendship, the loss of, you know, connective spaces in the world where mm-hmm. we get to feel our full selves, like there, there's grief in that. There's grief in all of that. When I look at just the way the world is right now, there is grief at every turn. And we are ill-equipped to be able to really navigate that sense of grief, as you were talking about, because of the scariness of it, the newness of it, the unknown of it. There's a lot of grief is different too, right? Like Mm -hmm. the grief for people, for Mm -hmm. those who remember the time before, there's a grief over the loss. And then those who never had those spaces of interconnection and the joy of sitting in i mean not saying that there's not still coffee shops where you can gather or community taking place in nature things like that like you can find those places but it's not on tap the way it it would have been in in earlier years and in past times as well and i think for those who never had it the grief of not even knowing what it is that you're longing for, but that you know is missing is it's like, we need a different word for that kind of grief. Yeah. And, you know, I, I do have some language to share around that. I mean, <laughs> tell me the word. Um, <laughs> Please. There is something called ambiguous loss or mm. ambiguous grief, or in fact, complex grief that comes from work around people who are experiencing dementia and Alzheimer's. And the process that the family members of those folks go through is a complex form of grief, right? Which is an ambiguous grief, which is that 
they're still physically here, but mm-hmm. maybe emotionally, like energetically, mentally, they're not here. And that is a form of complex grief, which is that like, okay, they're physically here, but we're starting to lose them. And I think that is, I think that is what you're describing, right? Which is that like there, there's loss that is occurring. However, there's still some iteration of it that is still present or still alive. And that that is really, really difficult work to make sense of. And quite frankly, like I again, I think that we are so many of us are ill-equipped to be able to handle it, mainly through the lens of just like that we haven't experienced it in in this very way, right? Which is that like, oh, that's what it is. Or like, oh, that's the language that you would use to describe it. And mm-hmm. quite frankly, like when we have more language to describe our outer experiences, our inner experience is much more aligned. And we get to start to make like the really, you know, implicit ways of knowing more explicit by putting language to it. And so we're, we're doing the work now, right? This is what the work mm-hmm. looks like. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. I completely agree. And it takes presence and it takes time and actually digging, right? Yeah, I I feel that way too. As someone who has experienced loss of life and my mm-hmm. dad passing away, mm-hmm. I I too have a relationship with transforming my grief. And I think that to me, this conversation really is about that sense of dealing with change and navigating uncertainty while pursuing relationship and while pursuing our authenticity that that is just that's really complex work that we all do as humans but i do think yes that is but that is like the really messy project of being a person right that we all we are all navigating and sitting with really heavy things and difficult uncertain forms of the way we are and i often kind of i kind of laugh to myself because i kind of do think often yeah as a therapist as someone who you know, feels quite tapped into myself now, this, this bigger question starts to emerge for me, which is like, what is all this for? Like, what are we, what are we doing here? And like, what is this? And what is the way to be a human? And the biggest thing that I come back to is that there is no one right way. There Mm. are just many different magical and fulfilling ways that we can just like tap into who we are and what we need in order to be who we are. And I think that so many of us just busy ourselves and like work ourselves to find completion. And lately I've just been like really resisting moreness in place yes. of just finding like more wholeness, you know? Mm, it's the being, not the doing. That's right. That's right. I That's I right. I feel that so much. I feel that so much. And that the fact that we are seeking to know what for or what the outcome will be or where it's going is actually an indicator in and of itself of the conditioning to be productive and not a reflection of us in our most expanded authentic selves. Yeah. And I call that our hidden work. That mm. is our our hidden work that that is right there in front of our face, but we don't become conscious to it or aware of it until it like is right present in front of us and we need to do something about it. And I guess that that process of sitting with change and dealing with uncertainty and you know navigating grief and loss like that 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 does remain hidden right especially if we have an, an interest in shoving it away and not seeing it. So here's a question for you. I think it would be very easy for somebody listening to say, "Oh, well look at look at how easy it is for the two of you who have spent years having the space to do this work or claiming the space because sometimes I do think we have to claim it for ourselves. It's not that we're always gifted space. We have to claim it. And at the same time, I know, because I remember when I was starting out thinking, oh, it's so easy for these people who seem so much further along on their journeys, not necessarily further along on our paths, because everybody is, I believe, in their path in this time with many infinite potential futures that they can tap into. But for somebody who inside of themselves is listening and feeling like, yes, I want that. And where do I even begin? What would be your advice for starting? For me, it starts by reframing one really simple concept. Well, maybe it's not so simple. It's quite complex. And it's this, the world will tell you who you are until you tell the world who you are. 
And I think that that for me has really been a, an important shift and an essential shift in order for me to take ownership over that sense of, oh yeah, I get to choose. Oh yeah, that's my voice. Or, oh yeah, that's what I want. That's my passion. That's my purpose. And once you kind of iron out those, that layer, which is kind of like, oh yeah, I, I get to be in control and I have the opportunity to find my authenticity in a place or a sea of really inauthentic beings or spaces or, you know, like passions and purposes. For me, that is a really strong invitation that is really hard to ignore. And I have a really vested interest in helping people move to that place of you get to decide and what's your authenticity? Where's your voice in that? And so I would mm. say that that for me is just such such a great starting place. And I also know that's a daunting starting place and a big starting place. And so the, I think the next best set of guidances that I could give is that you just have to start somewhere. And if starting somewhere is just being brave and doing something different, then you're doing enough. Mm. Yes. Being brave and finding courage is work. That That is something that is still doing something. And so finding your bravery and finding courage inside of yourself that for some people takes many, many months, many years. I love that you're talking about courage. And it, it means extra to me because I feel like you have been someone who's given me courage. And, mm. and so that reminder that we do need to be brave and that that's enough too. We don't have to do everything. Yeah. I think the conversation that you and I had at one point when I was much earlier in creating this podcast was that it's okay to feel the fear and and to do it anyway. In fact, that's what the invitation really is. It's not to feel the fear and stop. It's to feel the fear and just keep going. It is one of my key and core life mantras at this moment, which is I'm going to do it afraid. Mm. I'm going to do it while I'm feeling nervous. I'm going to do it while I'm feeling scared. And some people take that as enough evidence to stop. People take the fear and the worries and the anxiety as evidence of why it won't work out. But that's just a feeling, right? It's not evidence. It's not actual mm -hmm. truth. It's just information. And mm -hmm. we get to respond to that information. We get to take that information and do with it what we will. Yes. Oh my goodness. Yes. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is sort of where I would love for us to kind of just land in this conversation is that sense of, you know, there is an alternate way. There's another way of doing it. And I have faith and I have hope for all of us. I hope that we all make it. I hope that we all get to where we need to go because I think that's possible. Yes. And I think that it is available for us and I'm rooting for us. I'm rooting for all of us. I hope that we all make it. People can hear that and kind of think like, oh, like that's too a bit too optimistic for me. But I, I think I do identify as an optimist in that sense because I, I just, I think that we have the human capacity to do it. And so whatever you're sitting with, whatever big feelings you're kind of navigating, whatever mm -hmm. struggle is kind of coming up, whatever goal you feel like is like unachievable right now, you mm -hmm. know, there, there's possibility here. There's a way forward. You just have to find it and you just have to unlock it. I completely agree. And I think belief is such a critical ingredient in being able to take the next best step. And we undervalue that belief and that faith and that connection to our own deep desires. Ooh, I'm, I love it. I'm I love so it. grateful for this conversation, Jake. I, I adore you and this has been illuminating and I love that this conversation has been able to bring in lenses from your own practice and from neuroscience and psychology and infuse it with what we feel and sense and know to be true in our own deep knowing. I just feel like it's it's been all the things and I am so grateful. Oh, listen, Sid, I, I am so deeply grateful for you. Thank you for giving this space. You are just such a special person and I am like just so happy to know you and I'm grateful just to witness everything that you are and everything that you're about to do. And so congratulations on your success.
Thank you so much. To our audience, I want to say thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed. If you like what you're listening to, please subscribe, share, or click the notification button on your podcast platform. For those listening on Apple Podcasts, I would be so grateful for a five-star rating and a written review. This will also make it easier for other listeners to find the show. If you want to connect with me more, please join me on Substack. I will be posting longer-form written pieces about my intuitive changemaker journey, as well as bonus audio content and having online discussions with the Intuitively Aligned podcast community. You can also find me through Instagram at Sydney Rebecca. Yes, that's Sydney Rebecca without an A on the end. Or through my website, www.sydneybloom.com. I also want to give a shout out to our podcast producer, Wilson Lynn. And I want to thank you again for joining me on this journey. I can't wait for you to hear the next episode.